people are people. People want the best for their children. Solutions may vary, but at the end of the day, that's really what we're all working towards. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back. I'm excited today to be joined by Brenda Solorzano. Brenda is the CEO of the Headwaters Foundation, an organization dedicated to a Montana in which all people, especially those most vulnerable, are healthy and thriving. Headwaters is a relatively young foundation, and Brenda is a relatively new Montanan. But in a short time, Headwaters has made incredible impact, not only through funding many organizations in need, but also doing so through new paradigms, including a deep commitment to trust-based philanthropy. Brenda, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, so tell us where you're from. Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in San Francisco. I was born Mm -hmm. in Guatemala, and when I was six months old, my parents decided to move to the United States, and San Francisco became our home. And what prompted that move to the States? My dad had been in the Guatemalan military and had gotten a little bit of a really upfront seat to what was happening in terms of civil war in Central America and knew Mm -hmm. that it probably was not a good place to raise a family and decided that coming to the U.S. would give us a different opportunity. And I think myself and my siblings are examples of living the American dream. For sure. And so Headwaters is a conversion foundation, and some of our listeners might not know what that is. Can you explain what a conversion foundation is? Yeah, absolutely. A health conversion foundation comes when there is a not-for-profit entity that is in existence and is going to be sold and turned into a Mm for-profit. And what uh, society says is for many years, those entities have received tax benefit from being a not-for-profit. And the resources that um, have been grown to this point really belong to the community as a nonprofit. And when it's sold to the for-profit, they don't want that for-profit company to benefit from it. Sure. So they transition those resources into foundations like Headwaters. In the healthcare industry, historically, there were a lot of nonprofit providers. Mm-hmm. And as medicine has become more business-like, there are more for-profit entities that are buying up these nonprofit providers. Over the last 20, 30 years um, in the health industry, there's a tremendous number of nonprofits that have converted and therefore have created hundreds of nonprofit um, health conversion foundations like Headwaters. Okay. And so this was associated with the sale of Community Health Center in 2015, I believe that was? Correct. Okay. And so what attracted you about this opportunity? I know you were in philanthropy and in the healthcare space in San Francisco for a long time, but... But why make the change, and this change in particular? Well, it's really kind of interesting story, um, Justin. I started out uh, getting a call from a headhunter who okay. was looking to fill this position. And when he first called me, I was not interested, mostly because I had never been to Montana. Yeah. And I had no idea that I would ever want to live in Montana and kept telling him no. Um, at the same time, and I had an opportunity to really begin to question whether or not philanthropy was the right career choice for me, mm-hmm. and uh, was thinking of leaving philanthropy. 
Then I went into a leadership program, and part of that uh, leadership program was to come up with a life plan of what I personally wanted to do personally and professionally with the remainder of my career. And I started developing a different approach to philanthropy where we we would shift from being gatekeepers to really partners, true partnership with nonprofits, eliminating or trying to reduce the power dynamic that exists between foundations and nonprofits. Um, I didn't think that this would ever be possible. It was sort of this pie-in-the-sky idea. And that happened to coincide right at the same time that this headhunter had called me. So I thought, well, let me go to this interview and meet these people and pitch this idea. And I had a wonderful conversation with the folks that were on the board of the Headwaters at the time. And I remember walking away from that meeting going, I don't think this board is going to hire this girl from California to implement this crazy idea. Uh, But they did, and it became this opportunity to really turn philanthropy on its head and create a new foundation from the ground up that does things differently. So let's maybe talk about that a little bit more specifically. So what were some of the existing paradigms in philanthropy? I mean, you, you mentioned power distance and so forth, I assume bureaucracy and pace maybe were a couple of other attributes of philanthropy, but what wasn't working in the model that kind of made you disillusioned? Well, there's a couple of different things that I usually use as examples for why I believe philanthropy in the more traditional sense was not really working for communities that we're supposed to be serving. Uh, The first is just the amount of bureaucracy that exists on both the inside and the outside of the philanthropic business. So I found myself basically hopping through a lot of hoops internally, writing a lot of documents, trying to convince a lot of people to support community organizations that were mission aligned. At the same time, I was asking those organizations Mm -hmm. to hop through a lot of hoops themselves. Sometimes this would take six months, nine months, a year, before we would get to a point where our foundation would decide, okay, we're gonna go ahead and give a grant. And in that year time period, There was a lot of wasted time, obviously, because the organization couldn't focus on the work. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that that whole process added a whole lot of value at the end of the day to the work that actually got funded or that eventually got funded. So I always questioned, why do we do it this way? So that's one example, bureaucracy. The other is that often foundations hire people that uh, have particular expertise in certain areas. And there is a lot of, I'll call it pontificating, around what foundation leaders think needs to happen in community. Okay. And when I look at my philanthropic career, the places where we were most successful in supporting work were those places where we didn't dictate as a foundation Mm -hmm. what needed to happen, what the problems were, what the solutions were, uh, what the approaches needed to be. It was those places where we entered into a conversation and a relationship and allowed the nonprofit or the community group to really drive the work. Sure. And that became to me really interesting because I'd been part of so many philanthropic efforts that were really top down. This is what you need to do to get the money. This is what you need to achieve. This is how we're gonna measure success. Most of those didn't work. But the ones where we said, here's some resources to do some mission aligned work, those are the ones that really took off. And why? Because there was buy-in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really, to me, said we really need to get rid of this power dynamic that exists where the foundations are telling organizations what to do. And so coming here, so first of all, it's attractive because you kind of needed a change. But two, it's a brand new entity, right? So you can build out 
this team. And I mean, that must have been an interesting moment for you to sort of have the the courage to just come into a, a job interview swinging for the fences, so to speak. Yeah, I, I pretty much describe it as I showed up and they gave me keys to an office and a box of business cards and said, <laughs> build us a foundation. Yeah. Um, scary, uh, especially because I did not know a single soul in Montana prior to coming right. here. So uh, challenging on a number of different levels, but exciting because it was blank space to mm -hmm. create, to be mm -hmm. innovative, to not have to say, well, this is the way we always do it, and so that's the way we're going to do it. And I think I also have to give credit to the board to being really open to saying, okay, we're not going to go the way that most foundations go. We're going to go this different path. Yeah. And that excitement by people on the team as a staff member or as a board member, I think really encouraged me and said, let's try it. Um, so now, this is the space where we can test out different ideas and, and new approaches to doing the work that really allow the nonprofits to focus on their mission-critical work and not focus on having to chase dollars. Sure. So talk about how you've kind of operationalized this philosophy. I mean, you, you had this, this sense of the way you wanted things to get done. How, how, how do they get done, and how did you make that happen? Yeah, there's a couple of different things that we did from the very beginning, mm -hmm. um, and that was... Uh, the decision to really put community in the center of everything that we do at Headwaters. I often said to the board and to my staff, this money that was generated by the sale of Community Hospital does not belong to me, does not belong to the board, does not belong to the staff. It really belongs to the people of Western Montana. So we should not be the ones that determine what it is we're going to fund. Right. We should let the communities determine that. The first three months that I was here, I spent a lot of time traveling Western Montana, talking to anybody who would be willing to talk to me about what should be the issues and populations that we should prioritize. And that, in essence, drove our focus on upstream systems change, addressing social determinants of health, and focusing on children and families in particular. Um, so that was fundamentally the first thing we did. The second thing we did is we thought about how do we simplify the application process for nonprofits. Sure. So we decided, what if we didn't have a traditional application process? What if we got rid of, you know, requests for proposals and letter of interest and the all back the and forth? All the vocabulary and jargon and all of that. Exactly. Yeah. What if yeah. we got rid of all of that? And instead, we just sat down with people and had conversations about what they thought they needed money to do the work that was yeah. mission aligned. Yeah. And then we just did that. <laughs> it's it's so simple, right, in right. common sense, and yet we that's not how philanthropy operates. And so the opportunity to actually do it that way, um, I think has been transformational to the relationships that we've built with organizations in Western Montana. And so as you're kind of bringing that operational culture to life, what do you what signals are you getting from the community as to, you know, who are the vulnerable populations that you, you, you want to serve and connect with? How are you kind of getting the signal from the community? Yeah, so clearly from the very beginning, we heard that uh, Montanans wanted us to focus on children okay. um, and children that come from underprivileged families, uh, children that have to deal with hunger, families that have to deal with a lot of different challenges that just don't create an opportunity for those families and their kids to have a bright, healthy future. Yeah. Um, we also heard a lot about um, the health disparities that exist among certain communities, and in Montana specifically about the health disparities within the American Indian community. Okay. So that also became another focus for us. Um, we also 
heard that it would not be good if this foundation focused on just filling holes and gaps and and just provided direct service resources. That if we were going to make a difference in the long term, that we needed to focus on those upstream issues to really bring communities together to identify what are the solutions to the many challenges that keep Western Montanans from being healthy and thriving. Is that what you mean when you say upstream solutions, like more systematic change? Yes. So, you know, you can, it's that, that saying that you can give someone a fish and right. they're full for the night, but if you teach them how to fish, that changes their whole life trajectory. Same concept here. We could provide car seats, for example, for every child in Montana or provide food boxes. But if we don't fundamentally address the systems that are creating these inequities among families in Western Montana, mm-hmm. nothing's going to change. And we would run out of money. Yep. And so clearly people in Western Montana believe this because that's what they said to us is focus on that kind of work instead of just filling the gaps. And so this kind of approach that you're talking about, you know, you've heard you and others describe it as trust-based philanthropy. How, how, do, how do you kind of develop that trust? And not only because I, I, you've got to probably be working multiple sides, like you're trying to establish a relationship, a trust-based relationship with potential benefactor, but it's also at the same time your board has to entrust you to to make the right choices and to build the right relationships. Yeah, and this is why we call it trust-based philanthropy, because trust is at the center of how we do our work. Oftentimes, trust-based philanthropy is described as a way to do grant-making, and it's much more than that. It is really a values-driven approach with a belief that if you actually have trusting, authentic relationships with those people that you work with, then you can actually operate at a very different level and hopefully have a greater impact. I often describe our approach to this work as a trust-based circle, Um, Mm. and it started with the trustees of Headwaters agreeing to trust the community to decide what it was we were going to focus on and prioritize. And then we have to have the trustees of the foundation trust the staff and myself to operationalize what what the community has said. And then we as a staff have to trust the organizations that we work with and that we fund so that they can actually do the work that they believe is important. That circle of trust is required to operate. And that doesn't mean that it's perfect, right? We have had broken trust like any other relationship in different levels of this circle at Headwaters in the last few years that we've been operating. Mm -hmm. But because we're trust-focused, we have built strong relationships among all those different people in our trust circle. And when we enter into those challenges, the expectation is that that relationship will allow us to have the hard conversations and resolve whatever challenges in front of us and allow us to move forward and work together. Without that trust, you can't have that psychological safe space to engage in that candid conversation, sure. uh, which would make it very difficult. But because we approach that way, it's, it's been different. And I can tell you that as a new foundation, as someone from not Montana, yeah. I didn't start from being granted a place of trust. And that's understandable because I didn't have relationships with folks. But over the last four years that I've been here, as we've built relationships, as we've demonstrated that we are going to be there by your side, uh, working with you and troubleshooting and and resolving the challenges that exist, whether you're a grantee or a trustee or a staff member, um, that has allowed me to build the kind of relationships that are rooted in trust. 
Yeah, can we maybe tell us some stories or get specific with some examples, Brenda? Because I'm just thinking about it, like having never been to Montana, new foundation, new approach. You're a woman of color coming to this new state. Like, how are you, how have you been able to build trust and really, like, how did you navigate that and bring that sort of leadership vision to life in a way that people were willing to buy in and trust you? I think it comes from granting trust before getting trust. Okay. So I'll give you a couple of different specific examples of this. The first is a program that we call Go Grants. Instead of having a traditional approach, what we did was we said, if you are an organization in Western Montana and you're doing mission-aligned work to address the health and well-being of children and families in the state, we should be giving you money. Hmm. It's pretty simple, right? So how do we make that as seamless as quickly as possible? Right. We created an online application process that allows an organization, if you're mission-aligned, to apply. After they've created an organizational profile in our system, it takes them about 10 minutes to apply. Wow. We can approve it in 24 hours and get a check out to the organization within two weeks. How does it work? Let's just pause for a second. For anybody who's ever applied for a grant, <laughs> like that's, it sounds like the process that any sort of normal organization would use, but that's lightning speed in the grant world. Absolutely. Yeah. And the concept comes from this notion of, you know, when you and I go into a department store and they ask us, would you like to apply for a credit card? Sure. And it happens instantaneously, right? Yeah. Why can't it work in philanthropy that way was my question. Mm -hmm. So we actually built a grants management system at Headwaters that works that way. The system checks to make sure that you are an eligible organization working in Montana, mission aligned in our service region, and then we grant trust, yep. and we send you the money. Mm -hmm. And then we we build a relationship via that award. We have visited all of our go-grantees. Uh, we have gotten a sense of what they're doing and what they're working on. Now, when I first came to Montana, I went to some of these communities. They were not granting trust initially, and I totally understand why and, and appreciate where they were coming from. Fast forward two years, three years, where they have been receiving general operating, that's the other thing about these grants, is they're general operating grants, which allow okay. an organization to deploy them as they see necessary. So that, that you trust the organization to spend it where they think the right needs are. Exactly. Okay. So now I've got two, three years where we, as a foundation, have been supporting these organizations, doing this work in the community, and they're seeing, they're living, right, the, the, the relationship that we're building. And now they call us and they talk to us and they tell us what they need or they tell us what their challenges are. It's a very different relationship that mm -hmm. we've established. And that wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't granted trust yeah. in the very beginning. So that's an example of how we got operationalized. I think the other thing is um, people are weary. You know, so when I describe the Go Grants, for example, to a few nonprofit leaders in, in, in our service region, um, they were worried about somebody's going to steal money or sure. do something that they're not supposed yep. to. Um, and that's because we've trained them in, ph in philanthropy that somehow our gatekeeping functions keep yeah. the bad actors out. But the reality is people who are doing nonprofit work, it's God's work. It's, it's community work. Sure. That's not where you go to enrich yourself, yeah. really. Um, and so we've been able to be doing these grants for the last almost three years, be three years this August. And 
to date, we only have wonderful stories about the amazing work that these organizations are doing across Western Montana. We are now in relationship with them. Okay. We have a trusting relationship with them. And that's how it gets operationalized. Can you tell us some of these stories? Like what are a couple of the, the organizations you feel have really taken advantage of this Go Grant um, program in a transformational way? Yeah, there's a, a school in Frenchtown um, okay. that was able to receive one of these grants. And it was a teacher that it was a science teacher that was working with the kids had built an aquaponic garden. Um, and uh, wanted to expand it so that they could do a couple of different things. They were doing um, science lessons, obviously, uh, with the garden. Uh, they were bringing in the parents to teach them about how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, food was being produced out of these gardens that was then being incorporated into the school cafeteria. And parents were being given lessons on how to prepare some of these food product that they might not be familiar with. Sure. Um, so cooking lessons, and then that allowed the kids to also interact with the parents in a very healthy um, environment. That's an example of where all of these different people in this community were benefiting from this grant. I, if you'd asked me, Brenda, are you going to fund an aquaponic garden in Montana? Yeah. I don't think I could have come <laughs> up with that idea. But the fact that this community did and that they have used this money to grow that garden and do that kind of work where they're working with the kids, working with the students, really impacting not only educational issues, but also health and well-being via changing the paradigm of what is food and what is healthy food and how do you prepare that within a family context. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Ryan Tutel of ESPN Radio in Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Awesome. And so is the Go Grant like a, a, a one-time seed thing, or is, are they... Uh, are they eligible for subsequent funding or larger programs, or how does that work? So just like any relationship, if you continue to do sure. the good work yep. and be in good relationship, you can keep getting funding funding from us. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what trust is, right? And I think that this might also be another opportunity to highlight something, that trust goes both ways, mm-hmm. right? So um, there will be times, and there have already been times, where trust has been broken in the sense of, a community hasn't been able to um, utilize the resources the way that they had expected right. for a variety of different reasons. Um, in that instance, uh, the trust is broken in terms of how Headwaters is, is seeing what's happening in the community. And we as a foundation, again, as stewards of, this, of these resources, have to make a, a decision about whether or not we continue to fund. And we may choose to pause or to stop funding, and we have in certain instances. Doesn't mean we don't ever fund again, but let's enter into a conversation around how do we problem solve whatever have been the challenges in that particular effort so that we can refund again and be able to move the work forward. Yeah, as, as, you, as you mentioned that, Brenda, I can't help but thinking of this sort of polarized media and information landscape where we're all kind of trying to navigate. I mean, you coming to a new environment, meeting new people in a new community, trying to engage with communities and understanding their needs. How do you, how do you kind of navigate that world where, you know, 
people are viewing the world through totally different lenses, yet they probably have some common things they can rally around. I think one of the things I realized is that I was working in probably, arguably, one of the most liberal areas of the country. Yeah. And now I am working in a very different environment here in Montana. But what I have learned from having been in both of those different environments is that people are people. People want the best for their children. Mm-hmm. Solutions may vary, but at the end of the day, that's really what we're all working towards. And if we get an opportunity to have connection and relationship with people, um, you learn that we're not that different and that all these different powers that be have started to try to create kind of us them mentality. And so we've bought into it, I think, as a culture across the country. And the reality is that I've experienced is that it doesn't have to be that way. As a woman of color coming into Montana, I could have come in and you know, imagine that I, it's me against all these people. And I have found it to be quite the opposite. I have been welcomed into this community. I have built relationships across the region. Um, I have wonderful partnerships with a number of organizations because they've gotten to know me yeah. and I have gotten to know them. Our relationship, again, is rooted in a trusting relationship. And so we can have conversations. Even if we disagree on things, we can still have conversations about how do we make Western Montana a better place for children and families. Um, And that's where we have our common ground. And having been in these two different places, I sometimes sit and watch what's happening across the country, and I'm really saddened by it because I think the people that I worked with in California would get along. I work really well with the people that I've gotten to know in Montana. Um, And we have more similarities than you would imagine. Yeah, and that the focus on children just is such a a wonderful way to anchor connection. Um, Let's talk about, let's pivot for a moment and talk about one of your partnerships, and that is with All Nations Health Center. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have uh, DeShane Barnett on, who's the executive director over there, although he's moving on to the county, which is great for him, um, great for all of us, really. So talk about that relationship in particular and how that's a good example of this trust-based philanthropy. Yeah. Um, being new to Montana, I didn't really have strong relationships, obviously, with anybody, let alone mm-hmm. the American Indian community. And... Um, we were trying to figure out how do you build those relationships, just being aware and sensitive to cultural issues, historical issues that make it very challenging to work with a community because we who are not from Native communities have, I would say, fumbled mm-hmm. um, on how we work with, with, with those communities. Um, and had an opportunity to, to meet DeShane per, pretty early on. Actually, I, I had known him or of him in California because he worked in California as well. Okay. But got an opportunity to connect with him in his role here. Um, and I think he wondered about us. He wondered about whether or not Headwaters was really committed to addressing American Indian issues um, in Montana. I think he wondered about whether the board was really willing to cede some of the power that foundation boards have. Sure. Um, and he let us know uh, pretty early on that he was watching and that he he was not ready to enter into a relationship. Okay, so he was not receiving, or the organization was not receiving any funds, and he was saying, you know, I want to make sure you all are for real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how do you become for real? Mm-hmm. You build a relationship. Yep. 
and you start having conversations and you get to the point where you feel like you are in that authentic relationship and that you can enter into a partnership. Um, and I kept telling Deshane, you tell us what you think needs to happen at All Nations Health Center and we will support that. And I, I'm not sure that he totally believed it, but when it finally did happen, I think he began to maybe believe that we were gonna be different than the various foundations and philanthropic institutions that he had dealt with. Um, and we have really followed Deshane's lead on this work. And he has said, this is what I, all nations and the community that we serve need, and can you provide support to us to be able to do that? And hopefully that's what, what we have done. And so how does, where does kind of like outcomes and data kind of come into the mix here? I mean, Deshane, in, in the example of All Nations, Deshane's sort of leading the way with how the funds are, are spent and the work they're trying to do. And then I assume at some point there's a report out and an exchange of outcomes and results and, and conversation about those topics. Yeah, I'm glad you're asking this question, Justin, because it's something that we often get when we're talking about trust-based mm -hmm. philanthropy, right? What? You, you just trust? What? General operating support? How are you making sure that these resources are really resulting in something positive for the communities that are supposed to benefit from right. them? It's a complicated answer, and what I'll say to you is that there are a number of different things that we've thought about. Number one, redefining how you define success. Mm. So many of us have been Western trained, uh, data, right. <laughs> hard numbers, ROI. These are the things that we have come to believe are the ways that we should demonstrate success. And one of the things that I have been trying to push my staff, the board, and the communities we serve is that there are lots of different ways to think about um, success. And it doesn't always look the way that you would expect in a pie chart or a graph chart or numbers. Um, that you can agree to what it is that you're trying to achieve and then be able to collect data, which for me is stories, mm -hmm. about how this is making a difference. So the story about the aquaponic garden is an example. There is no hard data. But if I tell you that story, don't you feel good about we're making a difference in Punchtown? 100%. Yeah. It's a different way to define what impact is. Um, we also work very closely with all of our grantees for them to tell us, how are you gonna define success for what you do? So it's not us telling them, but they telling us. And then we do have conversations. Um, instead of requiring our grantees to submit reports, which is sort of another traditional practice of philanthropy, which by the way, over my 20 year career, I've received thousands of <laughs> grantee sure. reports. Yep. And if I'm being honest, I've skinned them maybe at most, mm -hmm. and they just go filed away. So instead of requiring a lengthy report that probably takes hours and hours for someone to complete, we sit down over coffee. We have a conversation. We capture what have been the success, and then our staff goes back, and we enter that information into our system. What does that mean? That means that the grantee can focus on mission-critical work and not on submitting information. Sure. We get to put the stories in and the data in that we know we care about, and then we get an opportunity to share that back out with our grantees, with, with our trustees. And we're getting pretty close to um, having an opportunity to share something publicly uh, around what impact we've had as a foundation. I'm really excited about that. But it's gonna be very different, I think, than yeah. what most of us traditionally assume. The other thing that I want to say about this particular issue is that foundations alone don't result in impact. Mm -hmm. One organization alone isn't necessarily going to 
change the systems. And I think that's another paradigm shift that we need to have, that if it were up to money, we would have solved all these problems a long time ago. But you need a right kind of environment, a political environment, a policy environment, a funding environment, the right collaboration, the right players at the table. All these things have to align in order for there to be some kind of change that positively benefits a community. Sure. Money alone is not going to fix that. And so we have to really be cognizant of that and think about how we define success very differently. Yeah, so you've mentioned a few of your you know, priorities are, priority areas, health, health of children, vulnerable communities, tribal communities in particular. Um, talk maybe about what you've learned about Montana, um, both in terms of the, the quality work being done here through the organizations you, you're working with, but also what are some of the barriers to improvement at a, at a systemic level that, that you've learned about? Yeah, so let me start with the positives first, mm-hmm. and then I'll talk a little bit about the challenges that I see. Um, small community, Yep. Everybody knows each other, so everybody who needs to be at the table can be brought to the table very quickly. Um, if you think about a big state like New York or California, yeah. trying to get like the key people in a room, almost impossible. Montana, you can actually make that happen. Um, a deep caring for your neighbor. Um, so people aren't coming to this work because you know there's a movement or an effort or you know, a media campaign, it's because they genuinely care about their neighbor. And that's powerful, right? The ability for people to care for each other, which is another thing that I think is missing in this country, but I still see here. I think the the ability to be in a resource-constrained environment, and you kind of make it happen anyway. Yep. Uh, the amount of volunteerism that exists in the state, the desire of people to work together to create better community for themselves, their family, their children, all of those are, are strengths I see in, in Montana and a, a very rich nonprofit community. Absolutely. Right? Especially yeah. here in Missoula. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the challenges that I've, that I've seen is that it's re- related to the strengths, right? Usually that's the way it works. Nonprofits in this community and communities across Western Montana live in a um, resource-starved uh, situation. Sure. And when you approach problem solving from a limitation of resources, you think smaller, right? Because you don't have the ability to dream yeah. and to think about what could be possibility. Um, and so that requires some ability to have time have resources to reimagine and problem solve in in creative, innovative ways. Um, I'm hoping that Headwaters can create some of those spaces because that, I think, um, limits the ability to achieve the kind of change that people want to see in Western Montana. Um, Another thing that I I think is um, a challenge for this region is um, just not having access to information and um, other kinds of resources, not dollar resources, that you might have in a bigger mm-hmm. um, community. Sure. Um, so, you know, California is the capital of innovation, and you're learning about things almost daily about how people are transforming everything from you know, the car industry to philanthropy. In Montana, we're, we're a little bit slower to catch up to that because we're not exposed to it as much. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping we can do is – not not bring in like what other people do because that's the other thing I learned about Montana is Montana's like to be led by Montanans, sure. but to 
learn about other things, to expose the thinking to other ways and other approaches um, so that we can take what works, what could work in Montana, and implement it and leave whatever does it, you know, to the side. Um, so it, that's really about a resource thing, mm-hmm. right, more than anything as well. Um, and that, yeah, we're, we're a little bit of help because we're new resources that are available to communities. And my hope is that some of the work that we're funding catches the attention of other funders at the local, at the state, regional, and national level, and maybe begins to leverage some resources into the state. Yeah, I would think beyond, you know, when we hear the word resources, we, th- we think about money, mostly. And you're getting money flowing faster, but also the, the resource of time that you've, you've, your model has been able to free up for these organizations. They're not spent constructing these elaborate reports in a very precise format to please their funders. They're, they're having a conversation with you so that they can clearly communicate and do the work. Yes. So on average, it takes about 40 hours for an organization to complete an application. Wow. What if you took 39 of those hours and yeah. put them to mission-critical work and 100%. not chasing money, right? Yeah. I often describe philanthropy prior to my experience at Headwaters where we would basically ask nonprofits to turn into pretzels hmm. in order to get the money, yeah. when in reality what they needed was general operating support to do the mission-critical work that they were doing. Um, why, why don't we do that? Yeah, right. and then if facts change on the ground, you got to go through this elaborate revision process and you just, yeah, the amount of just friction in the system. And that's probably, it seems like it's explicitly by design to sort of, you know, probably not necessarily to avoid the necessity for a relationship, but at the expense of a relationship, I guess, or as an alternative to investing that way. Exactly. And I think that that inherently has then created the the power dynamics that exist between right. foundations and, right. and nonprofits. Um, and I don't think that was necessarily the intent, but that's just the way it sure. has um, come to be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this this work is hard. It's much harder to break up with somebody when you have a relationship with them than if you've been in a power dynamic and you just tell them, sure, sorry, cut loose. Yeah. Uh, and, and it requires more time on our staff's time. But that's, that's the value of our staff, right? They're not just sitting there doing due diligence and reviewing things and making decisions. They're actually on the ground being partners with sure. all of our grantees um, across the state. And I'd much rather have them be doing that than the gatekeeping functions that my teams have done at, at other foundations. And then your resource question or your resource comment um, raises for me the notion that we've thought about Headwaters not just as a grant-making institution, but as a, as a partner in community to try to affect the change that Montanans want to see yeah. in our state. Um, so we have a lot of different things that we've thought about. How do we play a role in convening um, folks in the state? How do we bring information, right? So some of that opening up of different ideas and innovation that exists in other parts of, of the country and, and the world. Um, and more recently, we've been thinking about um, the space that we're going to be creating here in Missoula. We're mm-hmm. building a, a remodeling a building in downtown Missoula. The ground floor is going to be community space. And the idea there is it will become a resource for the community where programming will be offered, where convenings will be held, where trainings uh, will happen. And that's another way, another resource yeah. that we're going to be offering, hopefully, to, to people in Western Montana. And another way to build trust with the community. Exactly. Sure. 
So, Brenda, as we close here, what are you most excited about? Like, what's what's your next challenge? What are you most proud of? Like, how do you reflect on these three years you've spent at Headwaters and, and what's next? Yeah, I think uh, we have shifted from being a startup foundation to what I call a performance foundation. Yeah. And that's really what I'm excited about. And what I mean by a performance foundation is that we've now done enough grant making and enough relationship building and enough connections that we have a story to tell about how this is working. How it's working for Montanans, how it's working for our grantees, and how trust-based philanthropy is making a difference in terms of the relationship we have with the organizations that that we fund. Um, and this is exciting to me because it's it's this is the reasons why you do work. Yeah. Right? You you want to see something happen as a result of what you're doing, no matter what field you're in. And I think we're just entering that field mm-hmm. uh, or that phase of our organization, and the opportunity to share that with the broader community is very exciting. I'm also really excited about demonstrating to the field of philanthropy that trust-based philanthropy is the way to go yeah. um, and being able to tell the headwater story. Uh, right now, on a monthly basis, I'm getting asked to speak about trust-based philanthropy across the country and even to funders outside of the United States about how it works and why it works and why it matters. Um, and I and I often go home and tell my husband, you know, here's this little foundation in middle of Montana uh, who's being called upon mm-hmm. to talk about why this matters. Um, and foundations across the country are interested. So the opportunity to maybe not only get them to pay attention, but to actually change their practices. Because what good is it, Justin, at the end of the day, if just Headwaters is doing the work this way? Part of our effort should be to also get our colleagues in philanthropy to adopt this practice. Sure. Um, and, you know, I have come to love Montana. It's home now. Uh, I've got two kids that are growing up here, going to school here, and uh, the opportunity to be able to be part of this community doing this good work. What's there not to to like? Yeah, well, we're glad you're here. We're glad you chose Montana. Brenda, if folks want to learn more about Headwaters and the wonderful work you and your colleagues do, where where would you direct them? Uh, A couple of different places. Uh, Number one, our website um, at headwatersmt.org is a great place. Um, And the second, it's also on the website, which is my contact info. Mm -hmm. Part of what I do is build relationships. And so if any of your listeners are interested in learning more, um, my contact info is there. Please give me a call. I'm sure many will. Brenda, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. We're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift of UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors and Drum Coffee. AJ Williams is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amen, and John Wicks made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot. See you next time.